This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. I'm playing with the throttle again. I was taking it down or adding some to it. I'm not sure what it was. And it wasn't responding as expected. And almost immediately, it started to roll back. And I said, Jerry, we've lost the number two engine. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's episode is an interesting situation indeed. We have on the line with us Wayne Carr, Chief Pilot, President, and CEO of AirTrek. Wayne is a general aviation pilot, a CFI, and he's type rated in a Citation 500 and 650. We also have Dana Carr, Executive Vice President and Director of Operations for AirTrek. Dana's got an ATP rating and a Citation 500 type rating as well. Also with us is Bruce Monnier. He was the captain for the situation that we're gonna talk about today involving a uh, dramatic Citation flight. Bruce is an ATP-rated pilot, a CFI. He's got a Citation 500 type rating and over 4,000 hours. Also with us today is Jerry Downs, co-captain of the flight. Jerry's got an ATP rating, a Citation 500 type rating. He's helicopter rated, glider rated, gyroplane rated. He's an instructor. He's got over 10,000 hours of flying and he's been a pilot for 48 years. These gentlemen experienced a double-engine flameout in a Cessna Citation out over the Atlantic Ocean just east of Savannah, Georgia. They're here to share their story with us and their remarkable recovery. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today on the There I Was podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, Bruce, I'd like to start with uh, with you and Jerry. The situation that we're going to talk about is one that I don't think I've ever heard about before, and that is a dual-engine flameout in a Cessna Citation and what we would refer to as a, what's commonly called a dead-stick landing. We in ASI were quite alarmed with the situation that you guys uh, were presented with, and uh, we uh, helped move the industry to put together some protection measures that other pilots might not uh, find the same uh, incident happen to them. But Bruce, if you uh, if you don't mind, you and Jerry, can you set us up with just uh, start the day? I know it was a, a flight, probably a, a relatively routine flight from Naples to Niagara Falls. And do you mind just uh, setting it up and tell, tell us the story? Sure, absolutely. We started that morning as any other day. We started at the base in Ponta Gorda. They loaded up our plane, pre-flighted it just as we normally would, not expecting anything out of the ordinary. Fueled up 
enough fuel to get to Naples, knowing that we had to go later to Niagara. We went down to Naples, picked up our patient. We topped off there with fuel. From there, we loaded up, and it was just like any other day. We loaded up. We're in the plane, and we're at altitude cruising along at 350. So far, nothing's happened. So um, I'll back up just a little bit. Air Trek, your mission is um, patient mobility. Is that is this a fairly typical uh, run for you guys? Can you talk a little bit about Air Trek and what you guys do? Uh, Air Trek is an air ambulance business, and we've been in uh, transporting patients uh, this was a pretty typical flight uh, where we start out at our base, reposition to another airport, in this case, Naples, and we generally go out of here so that we can meet landing weight at the other, at the next airport. So they put about mm, 4,200 pounds of fuel on here. So each of the two airplanes that were involved in this incident um, fueled with about 450 gallons of fuel here repositioned to Naples where our medical staff goes into the hospital, picks up the patient, and then brings them back out. While they're doing that, the the pilots post-flight and then re-pre-flight the airplane and add what additional fuel that they need at that, that place, in this particular case, Naples, and then they depart and go generally nonstop to their destination, which in this case was Niagara Falls for these two gentlemen. Okay, got it. So fuel up at uh, at Punta Gorda, very short, short hop uh, down to Naples to pick up your patient, something that's routinely done, pretty commonly done. And is uh, is Punta Gorda the home base for, uh, for Air Trek? Yes, it is. Okay. All right, so somewhere you're, you're uh, familiar with operations, put the fuel on board, a lot of uh, consideration into your weight and balance and your performance and, and the things you think about when you're going uh, that long a distance in these kinds of uh, airplanes. And now, um, Bruce, you mentioned that um, your route of flight was from Naples to um, Niagara Falls. And I noticed as I tracked that out here um, on the foreflight, looking at um, identifier uh, Alpha Papa Fox to uh, India Alpha Golf, and part of that flight, uh, you're about probably 25 or 30 miles over the Atlantic Ocean. That's correct. I'm, I don't remember specifically that day if they give us direct right out. Normally, it's more like uh, they send you over Lakeland-ish area and then direct. But we were at some point as much as 20 miles offshore, if I remember correctly. Yeah, got it. And so, so far, uh, so good. You're climbing up to flight level 350. You're in a uh, Citation two, I believe. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, Citation Two, great performing airplane. I'm I'm also typed in a in a Citation uh, Three, um, a five two five type rating, and so uh, they're just great performing airplanes. The Citations are and great for the mission you're using it for. So so far so good, nothing unusual. You're cruising up at altitude, and then uh, would you mind uh, what happened next? Sure, we're in normal cruise. Everything is going as as expected, and. You know, we've already we're on step. We've picked up speed. We're an hour and twenty in, very routine. Nothing, nothing. And I find myself fidgeting with the number one engine, trying to get the N one fan speed where I wanted it. And it was kind of reacting a little different than normal, but not enough to be alarming. Not enough to even make note of. Um, after seeing me fidget with it for a bit, Jerry actually asked me, "What percentage are you looking for?" And I'm like, well, you know, 103%, give or take. You know, I just like it to be in there. And <clears throat> as we're messing with it, 
it's just kind of reacting a little funny. And I said to Jerry, you know, I'm going to pull this back to about 90%, see what it does, and then I'll put it back up because I just wanted to see how it just felt abnormal. Not alarming, but abnormal. So we pulled the number one engine back to about 90%. And of course, it spooled back without issue, no problem. And then when I tried to roll it back up towards 100%, it went then to 89, 88, 87, and continued to spool back from there. That's when we uh, said, okay, well, it looks like we're losing the number one engine. Let's ask for lower. At that time, Jerry called up and asked ATC if we could get uh, one five fifteen thousand. And about where were you at this point um, geographically? Were you, were you feet wet over the east coast of Florida, or where were you? We were probably closer to a beam savannah out over the water. We were feet wet. I think we were beyond Florida, just just somewhere right there around Florida, Georgia, in that area. Got it. And for our listeners not that familiar with uh, with jets and fan speeds, it's it's not uncommon to run in your your in one fan speed at over a hundred percent, right? Can you just talk to us a little bit about the difference between N1 and N2 and your fan speeds and the things you're looking at for a jet engine. Sure, of course. Just like uh, in flying in GA, you've got a, uh, if you're looking in the book, you've got a certain RPM setting that you're looking for. We have a similar thing. It's just based on the N1 fan speed. That's basically the RPM of the front of, front half of the engine. Um, in this case, the book reads uh, the charts, performance charts at minus 20 degrees Celsius, which is what it is up there at 35,000 we were able to run the fans up to 104%. So I don't particularly myself like to just hold them at 104. That doesn't give me any leeway if it sneaks up on me because it gets colder. So I usually aim for closer to 103%. Okay, got it. Great. And so uh, you mentioned that it didn't feel right, but it was more that you weren't really feeling anything. It was more you're just uh, you're cruising at altitude, monitoring your engine instruments and your cross-check, and you're noticing that N1 just isn't quite where you want it. Right. Yeah, your typical response on the thrust levers when you push it forward a little bit, you expect it to bump up a tenth of a percent, or if you pull it back, you know you'd expect a tenth of a percent, and it really wasn't reacting the way you'd expect. Everything was perfectly smooth, and there was no actual feel in the buttometer, but the reaction of the percentage to the thrust setting wasn't what was expected. Yeah, it wasn't quite, just based on your experience, it just seemed as like, hmm, a little bit of a head-scratcher, right? Hmm, this just didn't quite That's right. Correct. We actually had it, a, it, We actually had a pretty good split on the throttles by then, you know, where the, the number two was where it should be, number one was actually above it, and we weren't anywhere near the same RPM. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, so that's looking different, too. Physically, the throttles are, are separated, where typically they're matched up. You might have a fraction of a difference between the, the, the number one engine and the number two engine throttles, but for the most part, they're pretty close together. And in this case, you're seeing that there's a pretty good physical difference in where you have those set. So that's another kind of that's this thing quite right. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, so you pull the engine back. Um, the, the engine rolls back, but then when you go to push it up, it doesn't roll back up and it actually starts winding down on you. And so obviously that's alarming. You know, now you've got a problem with the number one engine and you're at 35,000 feet. Walk us through, please. What would you do from there? Well, we know at 35,000 with a single engine, we're not going to be able to maintain that altitude. So the first thing before even figuring out what else to do, we just know we need to go down. So we've asked for one five fifteen thousand. <clears throat> they granted that to us fairly quickly. Uh, 
within seconds we've determined that this engine is probably not going to come back to come back to life so we've asked for uh, radar vectors to an airport at this case at this time we just asked for an airport a large airport with nice weather they suggested three of them one of them was savannah sounded great yeah we started punching in the information for savannah into the gps checking the weather checking runways of course, as suggested, it seemed like a perfect fit for our needs. It was within a reasonable distance, and we started headed that direction. And so when the, uh, Jerry, when the engine started rolling back, when you when you pushed it forward and you actually got to roll back on the RPM, and it kept rolling back, so you knew it was eventually going towards zero. And at that point, had you still not had any kind of uh, unusual indications, um, you know, uh, fuel indications or low fuel pressure or anything like that yet? No, that was interesting. The uh, fuel filter light did not go on, and so we weren't sure what we had here, if we had a uh, mechanical problem or what it was, but other than it stayed very smooth, it just was rolling back, and we never went to zero. Uh, The engines, the returning, anywhere between 24 and 28 percent. Yeah, interesting. Okay, which makes sense, right? If it, as long as it can freely windmill, it's not going to go to zero percent. It's going to, it's going to windmill um, due to some air pressure in there. But yet, uh, so you know, and you could you feel the thrust differential at that point? Could you actually, was was the buttermeter? I love that term, by the way. Was was the buttermeter telling telling you that um, you had you had thrust loss? I don't think so. It it was still pretty smooth and but at that point we were also had pulled back the power on the number 1 engine and we're descending. So um the yaw dampers on were coming down. I did not notice any abnormal uh asymmetrical thrust now. Okay. Okay. Probably to your point because you're in a decent and you had yeah. reduced power on the other engine so you you weren't really asking much of it at that point Correct. to start in your descent. Okay. Um now uh up at high altitude like that, 350, when you have a single engine rolling back on you, pressurization a concern for you at this point, or you the, the operating engine is enough to pressurize the cabin? Operating engine's plenty to, to keep the cabin pressurized. Okay, so that's not really an issue. You're, as long as it's not pulled back to idle, that is. <laughs> okay, got it, yeah. So uh, really, uh, foremost in your mind is you know you have a number one engine that's not operating you're diverting over to an airport. Good news is it looks like it's VFR. Um, you have a, a lot of altitude to play with at, at this point. You were, you were in a descent down to 15. Yeah, we're very comfortable with the single engine procedures. It was no concern on either of our parts other than the inconvenience. We had plenty of altitude. The engine hadn't shut down or mechanically failed in a, in a way where it locked up or it started on fire or anything like that. So it wasn't that alarming. At this point, we're figuring, you know, we had just put it to idle. We had put the number one engine to idle uh, in case we needed it at some point. It, there was nothing to lead us to believe that it had catastrophic failure. So at this point, we're just flying on single engine, and that is literally no big deal. Yeah, in a citation, uh, single engine performance in those airplanes is, is really good. Um, I've not actually done it actually. I've done it in the simulator quite a bit. But um, the single-engine performance on a Citation is pretty good, wouldn't you say, all in all? I would say it's great, uh, especially if you're, if you're not asking for a climb or a climb-out or anything like that. You can certainly fly uh, straight and level or descend all day long. But, yeah, it, the single-engine performance is doing the approaches is plenty adequate, and it is for a trained pilot, it is no big deal at all. 
Now, how about um, since you didn't have any really sort of classic indicators, what what kind of checklist were you guys working through to analyze your problem? What was part of the thinking there? Early in the descent, we were talking about where we were going to go and working that out. Then we briefed the patients and the medics in the back of what we were doing. And I'm sure the medics that are seasoned and have been on many flights and seen everything, I'm sure they let the patients know and the passengers know this is not a big deal. It's a single engine. We'll do an approach. We'll land. It'll be, it'll be uh, without incident. As we started getting lower, we busted out the single engine approach checklist. We did brief ourselves on it. We knew it was early to do the items, but we wanted to brief ourselves on it. For example, the VRF speed. This is not something that we've got set for mid-flight. So we talked about with the weight of the airplane. We added the 10 knots as suggested in the checklist, and we basically briefed what the single engine approach was going to be like. At this point, it was we had the engine pulled back. We had the other one pulled back to roughly 65%, give or take, and we're just descending in at a nice smooth rate. Okay, great. So, so far, so good. Engine engine problem, but not not that complicated of an issue so far. And then, uh, but it gets a lot more complicated, right? It does. There's a layer below us between uh, 3,000 and somewhere between 4,000 and 4,500. We're coming down, and they're giving us radar vectors. We haven't visually spotted the airport, but we've got it on the GPS. We know where we're at in relation to that. You know, we're we're working through everything on the plane, going through the checklist, so on. On our way down, we're being vectored in, I would say, kind of a large square on the approach end of the field, if you will. And coming through 8,000, we've, we've pulled back, and here we are. I'm playing with the throttle again, whether it be I was taking it down or adding some to it. I'm not sure what it was. And it wasn't responding as expected. And it, almost immediately, it started to roll back. And I said, Jerry, we've lost the number two engine. Mm, mm. And at this point, you're at about 8,000 feet, you said, and, and how many uh, miles away from the field? Yeah, to 13. the best of our, yeah, it looks like we were about 8,000 feet high and about 13 miles from the field. Okay. So, um, 8,013 miles, so you're on the approach, but you're not yet on the straight-end part of the approach. Is that right? Yeah. We were actually pointing away from the field when the second engine rolled back. Uh, as soon as that happened, we let ATC know we've lost our second engine, requesting radar vectors direct to the field. They turned us to a 180 or a 190 heading, which was virtually straight into 19, and we made that turn. We started discussing... Uh, glide distance range. We both did some gorilla math and we both agreed and concurred that we had plenty of altitude, plenty of energy to make it there. And so there wasn't really a checklist from here on out. Yeah. There's no checklist for dual engine failure. Right. Yeah. So um, you turn towards the field and you figure out very quickly that at 8,000 feet, you can make it 13 miles how did how did you figure that out? Can you walk us through those calculations? Did you did you just have a feel for what your glide ratio was? Did you have any instrumentation in the cockpit that's given you that range? How'd you figure that out? We've we've got no instrumentation that gives us this range. Uh, Jerry and I both had our own systems, and we both came up with uh, yes, we'll make it, which was pleasing to both of us. For me, I'm guessing because there is no glide ratio posted or published for this airplane. I was guessing it was somewhere around a 12 to one glide ratio which will give, us, give you two to one on your altimeter, meaning if you've got 8,000 feet on your altimeter, that 
roughly means you've got 16 miles of glide. Uh, that's a very gorilla math, as I put it before, but that was enough to make me feel comfortable that we were going to make it. Now, I know Jerry had a different system, and he came up with a different number, but again, it was over 13, which was pleasing to hear. Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to hear about that. I am curious, though, this just really speaks to the value of uh, experience in, in aviation, especially when you do the more complicated missions like you guys were flying. 12 to 1 uh, ratio, Bruce, where did, where did that come from? How did you pull that number out of your hat? Well, that's an interesting question. The, I think a generic number when flight instructing an NGA aircraft, whether it be a Cherokee or a, uh, an Archer or a Skyhawk, I think a nice generic number is 10 to 1. That's what I always taught as a CFI. That way, that was an easy number to do guerrilla math with. Now, I know your larger aircrafts, your Airbus, your Boeing, those things, those are closer to 17 and 18 to 1. And just based on the way that these fly at idle, I know they're better than 10 to 1, but they're probably not the 17 to 18. So it's just an educated guess. It's probably somewhere 12, 14. I did not read that anywhere. It's not published anywhere. That's just a nice educated guess. Really well educated guess based on your years and, and thousands of hours of experience and the studying that you do is, is uh, honing your craft so well. So, um, Jerry, uh, how, what was your process? Well, we were coming down a thousand foot a minute. Uh, we're 160 knots. And so we've got eight minutes in the air. And at that speed, we're good for just about 20 miles. And 20 miles, we only need 13. We've got, we've got extra mileage in the bank. Great. Okay. So there you are. Um, you're at 8,000 feet. You're at 13 miles. Both of you say, based on your experience and your judgment, you're, you're coordinating together as a crew here. You know you can make the field. Um, there's no checklist for this kind of situation um, in a citation jet. What do you do from there? Fly the airplane. <laughs> At that point, it's a glider. There's, there's, no, there's nothing else we can do. We did discuss what systems are going to work and what systems are not going to work. What problems do we expect from here on in? We, so we both suggested, okay, well, if the engines aren't running, we're not going to have hydraulics, which leaves out speed brakes. We don't mind. We're going to be coming in low and slow, and the field is plenty long enough. No problem. We both agreed that the tow brakes should work just fine. Um, we discussed what other systems we may or may not have problems with. The only thing that at the end of this conversation that had a question mark was the gear. The gear did require hydraulics to work. So two things. One, we discussed whether we thought it would work. We both agreed that it probably wouldn't and that we'd be blowing it down pneumatically. So we briefed on the procedure of blowing down the gear pneumatically so that we wouldn't be fumbling around with that on shore final. Mm. Now, uh, as you're coming in and you know you're going to, you, you start talking about systems that are going to work, systems that are not going to work, um, those citations, the, uh, the, fortunately, the flight controls are not hydraulic, right? They're, they're mechanical flight controls, so you weren't worried about keeping aircraft control. That's correct. You know, it's just cable-driven um, flight controls, and it's flying just like a 172 at idle. It's, it's gliding really nice. In fact, at one point coming down, I told Jerry, for what it's worth, this plane is flying exactly like it did in the simulator with no engines. Huh. 
Um, now, when you lost the the final engine, did you pitch to best glide? And and you know those airplanes, all the speeds, the V ref, and the approach, and all that will vary based on the amount of weight you're carrying and the and the density altitude of the day and all that stuff. W- when you lost that second engine, was that your reaction to pitch to a best glide speed? There is no published best glide speed. Hmm. And after the incident, we both looked and looked all over the internet and looked everywhere to try to find such speed, and it's not anywhere to be spoken of. So the guesstimated speed that we were looking for was what felt right to both of us. And we both agreed that the best glide was probably somewhere between 160 and 140, and I liked 160, and that's what we took in, and it seemed to work out. And how did you come at that? Again, your experience between the two of you is really coming through here. How did you come at that number? It was probably mostly a feel. We do have an angle of attack indicator, um, and we may have referenced that, but it was mostly a feel. Wow, and a feel that obviously worked out well. So you decide to pitch to 160, um, and by this time you can you can see uh, – the airport, I think you said there was a layer there, but you're beneath that layer now and you can see the airport? Well, as we came down, you know, we came down from the eight uh, with both engines out. We were gliding down. We were discussing some things. The cloud layer seemed to be, seemed to go fairly quickly. It was, you know, four forty five hundred down to 3,000. When we broke through the 3,000, when we came through that last cloud, we could see the field right where it was supposed to be, which is always a good feeling. And we knew we were going to make it. At that point, it was a, a non-issue. That, that's really important, though. Up to that point, when you're up at 8,000, there's a cloud layer down at four forty-five There is no published best glide speed. You're using your best judgment on what you think the glide ratio is so you can make the field. You're using your, your best judgment and your experience on what airspeed to pitch to. But you don't have a lot of real good feedback on whether or not either of those are working, right? Because you can't really see the field, so you can't see if the if the airfield is rising in your windshield, meaning you're not going to make it, or lower in your windshield, meaning you got room to spare. How did was that some tense moments in there, or were you just really confident in in the profile you were flying? I can honestly say that the two of us could not have been any more relaxed in the cockpit. Um, there was no tension whatsoever. Now. Had the two of us done our math and come up short, that may have raised some heart rates and changed some things. But as it was with how it went, the two of us, from the time the first engine rolled back to the time it touched down, there wasn't one ounce of nerves in the cockpit at all. Yeah, fantastic. Cool, cool under pressure. So uh, you're gliding down, you're over the cloud bank, you're comfortable with the profile you're flying. And now as you go through the clouds, um, all your instrumentation is working right, though, because you have you have backups. Most of your electronics are uh, are operated via generators working on the uh, with through the engines, right? W- did did that? Did you have any electronic issues at any point, or there was plenty enough residual in the backup, or how'd that work? It's still unclear, and we're not sure why or how. When we were coming through, right around six thousand, the altimeters, which are electronic, the two main altimeters went out. Of course, we still had our backup and it went out and I did ask ATC if they had an altitude for us and they said they had lost the altitude. Um, At the time, there wasn't a whole lot of thought into what it was. It really kind of even didn't matter. We knew where we were going. We just, you know, wanted to keep an idea on the altitude and we've got the backup. 
with a quick flicker of the master, the both altimeters came back on. It was, and then ATC said, we've regained your altitude. And hmm. Interesting. That's a real presence of mind for the pilot to lose the altimeters, looking at overcast in a double single engine, a double engine failure, and reach down and turn the master switch off, shutting all the power down to the airplane so that he could regain a system that had faltered on him. And that's what Bruce did. Yeah, yeah. During that time, uh, Bruce, when you did that, you had an attitude indicator. So you had everything except your primary uh, altimeter, right, is what you were losing there electronically? That's correct. Yeah. But, you know, in a, uh, especially in a, a flame-out situation, you know, how you're doing altitude-wise, pretty critical piece of information there. Um, the rest of it, the way the citation works is that you are on battery power for like your, your attitude indicator and the rest of your primary instruments. Is that right? That'd be correct. Okay. And so there was, uh, there was plenty enough of that uh, to, to last you for the remainder of the flight here. Um, and you still don't know why that altimeter, uh, the primary altimeter reading uh, cut out on you? Yeah, we're not sure if it had to do with um, low battery. At this point, we had been in the air for probably 20 minutes after they, they shut down. I'm not, uh, we I don't know the answer to that. I don't know what caused that. I just know that at one point we had lost them, and it was right around 6,000 feet or so. And the reason that it was somewhat troubling was we were about to go into the layer of clouds, which we were thinking we had an idea what the bases are, but, of course, you don't like being without an altimeter going through the clouds. Right, right. So uh, you set up on your best glide. You're pretty sure that you're going to make the field, but you can't see it. So there's a, a little bit of uh, you, you'd love to have that sight picture. You penetrate the cloud deck. It, it was relatively thin, 500 to 1,000 feet or so, so a few seconds that you're in IMC. Yeah, it was, my best guess would be 1,200 feet, you know, somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 feet thick. But, yeah, we were, it was relatively quick. Okay. And now you come, uh, you, you bust below that cloud deck, uh, you descend through the bottom, and you can pick up the field. Visibility was pretty good below the cloud deck? Below the clouds, it was severe clear. So once we busted through the clouds and we've got the field in sight, now it's a matter of energy management and how much drag to add when, mm. you know, including flaps or including gear, when we want to put that stuff in so that we don't cut ourselves short and kill our energy too much, and we still make the field, but we would like to have gear under us. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you don't get to take any decisions back, right? So once you, once you take away that energy, there's no way for you to gain it back. Uh, at, at, especially at this, you're only 3,000 feet. You've got no way to get thrust. Your, your only way to keep your airspeed is using your potential energy for kinetic, to trade it for kinetic energy. So when you busted through the clouds and saw the runway environment, um, you were lined up pretty well on the runway, or you still had some maneuvering to do there? We were 10 degrees off center line, so it was virtually straight in. Oh, man. And you said you were lined up on runway 19. I think that's about 7,000 feet of runway or so. So did that factor into your mind, realizing that, you know, in a, in a citation two, what was a typical landing take? Maybe 3,000, 3,500 feet on a, on a typical day? Yeah, if we're asked to do 4,000 or less, you really got to pay attention. Much more past that, and it's you've got way more than enough. You can come to a stop before the end of the runway without even touching the brakes. 
So 7,000, we knew we had way more than enough, regardless of what systems were or were not working. So what went into your decision-making there? Did you decide to land a third of the way down the runway just to give yourself some buffer, or what was your aim point there coming in dead stick? Uh, truth of the matter is we just wanted to make the runway, and once we started introducing the drag, we ended up landing at your normal 1,000-footers. We were pretty close to a, a very normal landing. We were a little short of that, but it was um, we, did, we didn't have the luxury of going a third of the way down the runway, that's for sure. Hey listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. So uh, you know you're going to make the runway, and then you're doing, as you mentioned, just like the rest of us in GA do in our Bonanzas and Navions and, and uh, Cutlass RGs. You come in, and once you know you've made the runway, now you start introducing the drag with your gear and flaps. And um, would you walk us through that? Did you actually have to emergency extend the gear, or how did you get the gear down? Did that take an extra few minutes? Or We first introduced the approach flaps. And uh, Jerry set the flaps, and they were indicated, and everything worked normally. They're, they're electronic. We expected them to work. And then we, we discussed when we wanted to do the gear, because we wanted to give it enough time so that if it went down, good. If it didn't go down, now we've got time to do it pneumatically. And if that doesn't work, maybe a second chance. We don't want to wait too late. And, of course, we don't want to do it too early because of the drag. So I'm wanting to say somewhere around um, 1,200 to 1,500 feet we started doing the gear. Now, the gear, initially, we selected it down, not expecting it to go down, but we immediately got a nose gear light, which is usually the first one, followed by the left gear, and then a longer than normal pause and right gear. But all three did light up. We did get three down locks. Uh, We discussed, I said, I'm convinced that they're down and locked. Are you convinced they're down and locked? And Jerry concurred. And at that point, we had written off the, the gear as done, complete, and we were settled that it was down. Do you think it came down with just the residual pressure that remained in the hydraulic system? Well, the, the, the engines were still windmilling. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the percentage that they were windmilling, but apparently they're windmilling enough to turn the gearbox enough to maybe make the hydraulics work just enough to hold enough pressure in there to put the gear down. The other thing to allow the gear down, the other thing is, Gravity helps out. They yeah. drop down. You know, so so they they locked in, and that was the end of that thought. We moved on to the next item. Great. And you mentioned you did this at about fifteen hundred feet. About how many? Uh, mile, what what is that? About a three mile, four mile final, give or take. Okay. Yes. Yeah, somewhere somewhere there's you're three to four miles from the field, fifteen hundred feet, and you and you and you go through the gear, which would have given you enough time to quickly work through your your alternative procedures, because what you're really probably thinking about and worried about is you don't want to get in that partial extension situation, right? You either want to be all gear down or all gear up. You don't want to be caught into the, into the mixed. And we had expected to need to blow them down pneumatically. Yeah. So we were, you know, we didn't expect them to drop down and give us three greens on the hydraulics. So that was a pleasant surprise. Everything's going what would seem like to me so fast here when you're working through that kind of stuff, did you have the checklist out and ready? Were you doing crew coordination and somebody reading the checklist or walk us through mechanically how you actually did that? 
Jerry had the checklist in his hand, and I I couldn't say for sure what he was doing. Maybe you could ask him, but I would guess he was throwing out the pertinent information, stuff that actually applied to this scenario. And we were discussing, we were, we were ahead of the plane the whole time. We were discussing ahead of time what we expect to work, not work, when we should do it. And, you know, even as fast as it all went, we were ready. And when it got there, when it became time to put the gear down, we put it down. If it hadn't have gone down, we were ready. We were expecting to have to blow it down pneumatically. So, we were we were on it, and I, I believe Jerry had the single engine checklist in his hand still, and we were using that as a uh, as a guide. Great. So um, you've got the gear down. You were at approach flaps. Uh, from there, did you uh, you? I would imagine you were carrying a little bit more speed than your VREF speed, and and so for our audience that that isn't uh, turbine rated, because of the way the the weight and so forth involved in uh, in turbine airplanes, you'll typically have an approach speed that you fly, and then you shoot for a ref speed as you come as you're coming over the numbers, and those differ based on the weight and the temperature and density, altitude, and so forth. So, can you walk us through? Were you carrying a little bit more speed than your typical approach speed at this point? We were carrying more speed until we started introducing the drag, and then that speed went away fairly quickly, you know, as expected. Mm-hmm. But a VREF for the weight that we had on board was probably pretty close to a 110 standard, but with single engine, you add 10 knots, so that would have been 120. No engines, it's probably closer to 130 or 140. And so we were coming in at 160. That 160 turned into 150, turned into 140, 130. And by the time we actually touched down, we were probably really close to 100. Hmm. Wow. Okay. And you touched down uh, in the uh, about a thousand feet down the runway. So did did any? It sounds like you guys were anticipating so much of that really well. Did any part of that surprise you? Like, were you surprised at how quickly you lost that uh, airspeed once you got the gear down, or? Any part of that surprise you? Well, we did discuss uh, short final. Jerry asked if I wanted full flaps. We did go full flaps. Um, at that point, it was runway was assured. There's, you know, under no circumstances were we not going to hit concrete. So when we put that in, that really did feel like uh, a lot of extra drag, and that shortened up where we were going to touch down more than I expected, if anything. But yeah, we still. Uh, I came in just short of the thousand footers. Yeah, and then from there you touch down, roll out. Um, the as we mentioned, the flight controls are mechanical. Was there anything different about the flight controls that you notice as you're dead sticking this thing down? Any anything at all different as you're flying this uh, glider? No, it actually handled very much like a you know very tame 172. Now I can tell you that one of our passengers in Naples before we had left, she had come to me with concern that she hated flying small planes. Hmm. And I had promised her that I would give her the smoothest flight possible, <laughs> meaning I will go around every cloud that I can and I will make every effort to give you the smoothest landing possible. I did remember this on the short final and approach that I was going to try to give this lady a great landing. Well, all things against, you know, we've got no, no power, no thrust, so here it is, and I'm thinking on the landing, I'm like, let's just give these guys a great landing so that it's even less scary. We made a great landing. Halfway down the runway, I see the fire trucks all waiting for us. We roll up to them. I come to a stop in front of them. The firemen come walking over to the plane, which is a great sign. It means we're not on fire. It means there's not parts hanging out. They walked over and greeted us, and we told them you know, what had happened. And from there, we were waiting for a tug. 
So right after we come to a stop, I had turned around and I asked that same lady, how was the landing? And she was, she was just thrilled to be on the ground and <laughs> said the landing was nice. Now at this point, this is when the medics, the patient, and the passengers learned that we had lost the second engine because they didn't know. Because on the way down, there was a lot of noise. And at one point, um, the cabin pressurization got a little goofy. Everybody's ears popped. And apparently, with the second engine, number two, at idle, from when it went from idle to off, they couldn't hear the difference. They didn't notice it. So none of the five in the back were aware that the second engine had failed. And we didn't really have time to brief them on it on the way in. Yeah, interesting. So you you did tell them, hey, we're diverting. We have a problem with the uh, with one of our engines. Yep. You did tell them that initially, and then just as things developed, there was just no time, um, no time to do it. When you uh, on landing rollout, uh, emergency brake system for the citation, or you or you had your uh, your uh, normal hydraulic braking. Normal hydraulic braking worked normally. Yeah, great. And you stopped with about uh, how much runway remaining? Uh, we were easily stopped you know, midfield. I'm not sure what the distances were. I just know where the fire trucks were is where I chose to pull over and stop. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, got out and greeted the fire crew and, uh, uh, amazing. Something I forgot to ask, who was the pilot flying and who was the non-flying pilot on this leg? On this leg, I was the flying pilot and Jerry was the non-flying pilot. Okay. So you guys really didn't have to go through, uh, change of aircraft control or crew coordination back and forth. You kept it kind of as was. Captain was the flying pilot, and you maintained uh, you maintained those duties. That's correct. And at the time, I didn't know that Jerry had a, had a glider rating and glider <laughs> time. <laughs> but in hindsight, I was glad to have such an experienced glider pilot on board. Boy, um, as you guys look back on this experience, and, and I don't know of another uh, – dead stick uh, landing in a, in a uh, multi-engine jet. Um, we'll have to do some research on that. But as you, when I first heard about this, I just thought it was remarkable um, what you guys did. As you look back on it, what are some of the lessons learned that you think about that, uh, that can apply to the rest of us uh, GA pilots? Training. Training is, training is key. Um, when we lost the first engine, the two of us were so calm and relaxed with a single engine failure as if it was an everyday routine occurrence. And that's what you want. That's what you want out of your captain, obviously. That's what you want out of your co-pilot. You, the last thing you want is someone that's palms up, flipping through the checklist, trying to figure out what you're supposed to do. If you already know what you're going to do and you're already comfortable with it. I had done simulator training. The company had sent me over to flight safety. Simcom, sorry. I had done simulator training and a citation not long before this. That was super helpful. We had done single engine approaches. We had, I had actually done dual engine failure gliding dead stick in the simulator. Training was paramount. When the second engine goes out, the calm in the cockpit is so nice. The two of us, we communicated. We went through suggested problems that we may have. We were ahead of the aircraft. We, we couldn't have asked it to go any smoother. This, this is Jerry, and I think the thing that I remembered, you may have remembered a long time ago, uh, we had uh, Bob Hoover get misfueled in his Shrike, and they had put Jet A in. 
and he had taken off and lost both engines, and he had a bunch of people on board, and he landed it uh, in a canyon going uphill, and everybody got out safely. And when someone asked him, well, what did you do? He said, I flew the airplane through the crash. And you want to keep on flying the airplane until you can't fly it anymore. And that's what we did. You did, and um, certainly uh, a, a gratitude for all of us in general aviation for uh, avoiding a disastrous situation through your training and your, and your skill. So training, uh, one of the lessons learned that you, that you pull out of that, I also just thought of a couple others as you're walking through your story and, um, you know, sort of in, in order, really, just, just your cross-check, your normal cross-check when you were up at altitude. You know, sometimes flying up there in those jets, I've, I've done it uh, quite frequently, it can get a little bit boring, right? The systems are so reliable and you're just cruising along. But to maintain the vil- vigilance uh, that you did, so you're, you're working your cross-check and you're noticing that something just isn't quite right. Um, it, it was no book number. It was no checklist that wasn't right. It was no light that came on. It was just you knowing your airplane, knowing something isn't quite right here. So running a good uh, cross-check. And then when you um, had the issue with the initial engine, your immediate response uh, to begin uh, your divert. And as it turns out, you were in a good place to where you could glide in. But if you think about it, you know, if you guys had a delayed that decision-making at all up at altitude, you could have easily found yourself in a position when, when that second engine went out, you couldn't make the runway. But because you made early decisions and started moving in that direction, you were, you were able to eventually make the runway. And then it's, it's just amazing to me the basic numbers that came to the forefront of your mind. Here you are, you, know, you're, you're, you have a double-engine failure, and you begin to think about those glide ratios that you learned about a long time ago and your experience as a, as a, just a general aviation CFI and how those numbers came back to you at such a critical point where the two of you could make a critical decision that, yes, we can make the runway. And being able to make that decision and then executing on that decision made all the difference in, in saving lives, really. And it, it's remarkable to me to hear how you guys were just confirming so calmly with each other back and forth, confirming the, the response of the engine, confirming the fact that you can make the, the, uh, the runway when you're at 8,000 feet, and confirming about the gear and what you were going to do. But it just seems like it was a very easy flow back and forth between the two of you. Did you have a lot of experience flying together? Is there company procedures? Where does that come from, that, that kind of comfortable crew coordination? The two of us had not flown together too many times, in fact. Um, Jerry doesn't fly too terribly often. He's one of our reserve pilots. Uh, I would imagine his calm comes from many, many years of experience. And my calm comes from that's just the type of person I was, and the guy sitting next to me was just as calm, which was great. Yeah. And and then... um Knowing your airplane so well, these things happen so quickly, you really didn't have time to get in checklists, and there were no checklists for the kind of uh, issues that you were dealing with. So knowing the systems of your airplane well enough to begin figuring out uh, what's likely going to happen and have the situational awareness uh, to start uh, to start executing on your game plan seems to me a really critical point that came through there. 
Yeah, that the training and knowing what was going to fail, what wasn't going to fail, that's something that can't be overstated because in our case, we were both aware of what was electric, what was pneumatic, what was cable-driven, what was hydraulic. If you don't know which is which and which is running which, that could definitely create some panic. And even on your, your landing gear checklist, right? Because of the situation you guys were in, you really didn't have time to pull that thing out and work through it step by step with confirmation. You really had to have an understanding just in case of this. It turns out it worked fine for you, but if it didn't, um, you know, your, your understanding of that system and how it worked would have been important. So I guess my point for the rest of us GA pilots is that it's so important to know your aircraft and your systems, and you can... Uh, hope that you'll have time to use a checklist, but expect that you won't and be ready to operate without the luxury of uh, working item by item through a checklist. Because as you get, as your situation demonstrated, sometimes there's no time. Absolutely. One last thing on a comical note, when we had come to a stop and rolled to a stop, I had turned around and asked them how it was, let them know there's a dual engine failure. Jerry was on the radios and he was talking to ground, letting them know that we needed a tug back to the back to the facility. I had gotten out of my seat and gone back to comfort the passengers and patients. And I had brought my lunch that day. So I had an apple, a fresh apple that I took out and I started eating my apple. And the lady in the back says to me and the medic, she goes, how can you be so calm after what just happened? And the medics sarcastically and hilariously said, that's what he does when we land. He just goes and gets something to eat. (laughs) (laughs) Just a routine landing. That's just another landing. <laughs> well, um, so um, let's talk about the issue that caused uh, your flame out. And what's interesting, Wayne, is this wasn't the only incident that happened to your fleet of airplanes that day, right? There was another incident of uh, a flame out in a Citation jet. Fortunately, it was they only lost a single engine. Do you mind sharing that with us? It happened on the very same day operating out of the same airport. Is that right? Yes, the uh, apparently the prist or the anti-icing additive that goes in the jet fuel, which citations require, had been mixed with diesel exhaust fluid, which is supposed to be injected into the exhaust system, not added to jet fuel or diesel fuel, because when it does, it sets up crystallization within the fuel. Um, somebody had mixed those. Um, and there's no way for a pilot or the fueler to determine because they are both clear liquids. This is injected post the filter into the fuel stream of the airplane. The other plane that was fueled uh, was fueled first, and it lost one engine just south of Louisville. It had also repositioned, ironically, to the same airport down in Naples. And when uh, we have determined or surmised that what happened was since the diesel exhaust fluid, commonly referred to as DEF, is two-thirds water, it was probably suspended above the prist in the bucket that where it had been mixed and the first group didn't get a lot of the uh, DEF in theirs because it it was sucking from the bottom of the bucket. That's why they only lost one engine 
and they had the other engine operating all the way to the ground. Mm. But when uh, Bruce called me from the runway, we knew he had diverted. We were watching him on the flight tracker, but not knowing why. We thought he might have had a patient problem, and he was going in for medical attention for the patient. There's several reasons he could divert, but I had no idea until he called me from the runway that they had actually lost both engines. And I said, okay, handle it. And I immediately turned to my brother, Dana. I said, call both airports that these people fuel that and tell them to stop fueling from those trucks because there's only one thing that could cause a citation to lose both engines in the same manner. And it had to be a a fuel issue of some sort, although we didn't know. But, uh, and then... As I was talking to the FAA about our situation, I immediately called my principal operations inspector at the FAA. Um, The other team called in on the satellite phone and said they had had an engine rolling back and that they were contemplating going into Louisville. And then at the end of the conversation, they said, we just lost this engine. We're going to Louisville. Well, from that point, it was probably a tense 20 minutes or so because I knew the first plane had had a double engine failure. And I think they informed him, the uh, Louisville crew, that Bruce's plane had had an engine failure also. So we had to wait the 20 minutes watching them on the flight tracker come down, not knowing if they were going to lose the other engine also like the first aircraft had Mm. done. And must have been some tense moments there. It was a very tense time. So um, the, those two airplanes uh, had the same profile. They fueled at Punta Gorda. They, they went down to Naples to reposition to get their passengers, and then they set off one to Niagara Falls, diverts into Savannah. The other one, uh, what was the destination it was headed for? Uh, Chicagoland, Milwaukee, particularly. Okay, Chicago area, and diverts into Louisville. Fortunately, only losing a single engine, but these circumstances happened within a half an hour of each other. Yes. Wow. What a what a what a day for your operation. So, um, this DEF diesel exhaust fluid uh, issue is uh, something that once we learned about your incident, uh, AOPA has led some of the other uh, industry associations to ban the use of this stuff on airports until we can figure out a better way to keep it separated. As Wayne, to your point, DEF uh, is colorless, it's odorless, it's just like Prist. They, they should be kept apart, there should be procedures, but when those fail, there's no way for the refueler to know, there's no way for the pilot to know until uh, an incident occurs. In fact, the FAA tells me that there's only one lab and I believe the University of Ohio in Dayton that can determine that there this DEF is mixed in Mm. because they have the only procedure to tell it. So it's pretty hard to do unless you do a full, full chemical analysis. Yeah. So Bruce, I want to go back to my reading of this is that what happens is, as the point Wayne made, the DEF uh, crystallizes and it clogs the fuel filters but inside the citation jet, there was never an indication to you of, of clogged fuel lines or low fuel pressure until, of course, the engine rolled back and you get all the Christmas tree of lights that come up with it with an engine rolling back. But prior to that, there was you, you had no indication. 
That's correct. There is no filter bypass light and no low low fuel pressure warning. Wow. I would like to chime in there. The there we did find crystallization in the filters, but it wasn't sufficient to actually cause a bypass. What happened was it started gunking up the fuel system and eventually clogged the fuel nozzles in the engine itself so they wouldn't atomize fuel is what we determined has happened. Oh, that yeah, that, now, that, that's important. So the fuel filter itself, the reason why you, you had no light associated with that is it was never completely clogged. No. And so fuel it was still flowing. It never went into bypass. Mm, yeah, so it kept on the, on the, on the, main, uh, on the main line. And then it actually clogged at the uh, at the engine nozzles, at the spray nozzles inside the engine. All we tried to get the engines running, the three engines, before we were trying to determine what had happened. We thought it was a water contamination. Never in my wildest dreams, although I knew about the previous two incidences in in Oklahoma and Miami of death contamination happening within the previous two years. I I knew our airport had procedures in place to prevent that so when we were trying to get them running i'm a mechanic myself i went up there with two of my other mechanics and we were trying to clean out the system and all we kept getting is i broke the system and fuel flowed that that part of the the engine out was this white gunky stuff and then we got it fuel clean fuel back to the uh nozzles, but the nozzles obviously weren't uh, atomizing the fuel, which requires uh, substantial hot section teardown to get to that part of it, which we never did. But none of the other three engines, despite my best efforts in the Savannah one and a maintenance shop in Louisville trying to get them running, ever got those engines rerunning. Wow. Now that's interesting. Hmm. So, um, as it as it stands today, both those jets are sitting on the ground in the locations where they diverted to. Right, the the dual engine That's flame out jet correct. is at Savannah, and and the other plane is uh, is at Louisville. Yes, they are. Well, um, what an amazing story uh, to dead stick a citation, uh, losing an engine at thirty five thousand feet, and come down to eight thousand feet and dead stick it into landing a, a just a tremendous airmanship and what we used to call head work in my own line of work. And um, a great example for the rest of us GA pilots to understand our airplanes and understand our systems and be ready uh, for unpredictable situations. Well, I, I personally want to nominate these two guys for any type of Scully Skullenberg award that there might be out there because they deserve it. Yeah. So uh, thank you guys for joining us. Um, Bruce, Gerald, anything else you guys would like to add? This is Jerry Downs, and I want to give you the rest of the story and show the professionalism of AirTrack. There we were, safely down in Savannah from a double engine failure, but our patient, wife, and daughter had contracted for a flight from Naples to Niagara Falls, New York. The paramedics got the patient out of the airplane. We went into the uh, FBO there and set him up in the pilot's lounge. We had some equipment that we had to run to keep him alive, and we were wondering what we were going to do next. Well, AirTrack was working feverishly behind the scenes, and what we decided to do was, remember we talked earlier about uh, Wayne having a single pilot authorization and citation? 
we only had him left to fly. So he grabbed one of our single pilot citations and flew it up to uh, Savannah, reloaded the patient and all the medical equipment into that airplane. So this is our rescue aircraft. And we continued the flight on to Niagara Falls. And it was interesting that we were about a three and a half hour delay. And we had promised good weather for that uh, daughter. And unfortunately, after three and a half hours, weather had moved in and it was kind of rotten weather. It was kind of bumpy. And we also had to shoot the approach to get in there. But as we were offloading her dad uh, into the ambulance, she came up and said, you know what? I still don't like to fly in little airplanes, but I would fly with you guys anywhere. And that's just a credit to us getting the job done to Wayne saying, okay, we got a solution to the problem and getting that flight completed so that the patient and his wife and his daughter were where they wanted to be. And it just, it makes me feel good at the end of the day, double engine failure, just part of the job. And we went and completed the mission. Just thought you'd like to know that part of the story. This story just has a happy ending all the way around. Some excellent piloting skills uh, to dead stick a citation in like, uh, like uh, you guys did. And then uh, to continue on with your mission, the whole purpose of the flight was to get the patient there and despite all that was going on, uh, to be able to still continue with your commitment and get the patient to where they needed to be. And, uh, Jerry, you had mentioned to me previously that uh, you guys had confirmed that that third citation had been refueled from a different source, so you weren't worried about the uh, the fueling issue there for the third citation. Fantastic. Uh, thanks so much. Um, Wayne, anything else you'd like to add? Uh, you know, it, we did what we had to do, and from the ground, we gave them the support that they needed. Uh, we made sure that the fueling, as soon as we realized that the the fuel was contaminated. It's the only thing that would cause that situation because the citation engines are completely separated on the fuel and the fuel's not mixed. So if you have two rollbacks similarly, it's got to be a fuel issue. It, you know, it was our efforts to make sure that this did not happen to any anybody else. But before we got to that, another Eclipse had been misfueled and it is currently... Um, out of service also. Unfortunately, it kept running and didn't get enough of the def put into it to affect it, but its engine was beginning sluggish, and they wound up getting it to a Boca Raton to an Eclipse dealer, and basically the airplane's been totaled because it's been it's beyond economical repair, as ours are, to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an that's a important point of your reaction, your concern just for the industry and other players, Wayne, is that realizing your situational awareness to know that in a citation, the fuel systems are separate for each engine. You can you can cross flow them if you want to, but that's a that's a deliberate move in case you have a fuel imbalance. But for the most part, separate systems feed feed their own engine and to realize that um if you had an issue with both engines like that, and then, of course, a third, it had to be a fuel issue and to take the immediate steps you did to try to uh, protect others and prevent any other kind of circumstances uh, also remarkable. Well, sometimes the situation's bigger than your particular issue. 
Well, great. Uh, guys, thank you so much. And uh, I, I just want to thank you for your time and uh, just congratulate you on really a job well done and um, pretty, pretty remarkable airmanship. So thank you all. Thanks thank you. for having us. Bye. A truly incredible story that reinforces that pilot skill matters, pilot experience matters, and it's instructive for all of us to understand the importance of, uh, of keeping our systems knowledge sharp and uh, being ready for the unpredictable. Hey, listeners, if you like this podcast and you'd like to support us and other things we do to support aviation safety, please consider going to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation.org slash donate. And consider a donation to help us continue this and our other important work in aviation safety. Well, thanks for joining us on this exciting edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, Tyler Pangborn, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash thereiwas. 